You can find us on... So, wait a minute. Just just a minute. You said progressive music. Isn't it progressive rock music? No. It's just it's progressive. progressive music. Have you always said progressive and not progressive rock? Yes. <laughs> God, I should listen. I should, <laughs> I should listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Prague fans. Welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prague Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and as always, I'm joined by... Craig and Lee. We are three friends and Prague aficionados here to talk about the history and the craft of progressive music, while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and the personalities that make this genre so great. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at UP3Show or on Mastodon at UP3Show on the Mastodon.social Wait a server. Are we on Mastodon? Dude, he's been saying that the Jesus. whole season. I think the Alzheimer's uh, is... Uh, yeah. I, it's a rich yeah, Alzheimer's day. Yeah, I guess. Craig, hold on to your shorts. I think I'm about to blow your mind. Yeah. No, you can also find us on our homepage uh, at UP3Show.com where you can find all of our back episodes and extra multimedia content. Oh my god, I had no and idea. The coup de gras. If you'd like to reach out, we have email Yay! up3show at gmail.com. <laughs> if you can't get enough of the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe <laughs> button on our podcast page at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. This makes sure that you never miss an episode in case your Alzheimer's is kicking in <laughs> and helps other Prague fans. And, and if it find is, just show. listen again because it'll seem new. <laughs> Craig, what the hell, man? <laughs> I, I broke you. I broke you. You kind of did. Um, you know, I'm going to start with Lee on what we've been up to <laughs> for Craig to give you time to remember what it was. <laughs> Take a sip of my beer. Yeah, I've been kind of down in the rabbit holes this month on music, listening to a few different things, but I will save that for the listening to part of the episode. Okay. Other than that, just working my butt off, doing videos now at work, and I'm really getting into that. That's awesome. Nice. Yeah, not just videos, but starting to do animations, so kind of feels like might be the next part of my future, but anyway. That really is cool. That's what I've been into. Awesome. What about you, Craig? Uh, Do you remember? I had a jazz gig last week. Ooh, nice. Uh-huh. I do this uh, Colorado Conservatory of Jazz Arts thing that I've shared multiple times. We do a recital each time, and usually it's at a jazz club, and for some reason they decided to have this one at the mall. We, on the one hand, had a lot of people walk by and listen. Uh-huh. On the other hand, the acoustics were awful. But it was cool. It was a lot of fun. It was cool. This was a good combo. This was my fifth time, and so I've played with all these guys multiple times before. You're gelling. Yeah, yeah, we're starting to jump. Yeah, you know what was was really cool because I was there. They were on the first floor of the mall, and there was like this like walkway right above where they were performing, and there were a lot of people just stopping on the second floor. Oh, that's cool, and just looking down and and listening. It was really really cool. They may have had like the best sounding seats in the house because people that were sitting in front of us were like too much. Yeah, I get that, but I could hear myself, and I got to do a couple. I, I could hear it. It was fine. Yeah, it was cool. Uh, we're getting ready now for a gig later on in June at a bar. Nice. We're going to charge money for that one. Ooh. Wow. Um, trying to stay entertained at work. <laughs> and uh, that's pretty much it. For me, I've been trying to spend this month 
being the opposite of what Lee was doing, where he's saying he was rabbit holing on some stuff. I have like a Microsoft OneNote document of all the projects I could be working on at any point in time. And I was like, you know what? I need to pare this down to the bare minimum. Put some definitely on the back burner for whenever I get to it and trying to prioritize some others. Mm -hmm. None of the projects I came up with are really necessarily relevant to here. Although I might swap one out and go back to being dedicated to either piano or guitar, like actually learning it properly. What is your top priority project? It's super geeky. It's actually a a tech project, but it's uh, porting some code from one platform to another. I'm not going to get into the weeds on it because we'd be here the entire episode on that. It's a project that it will be interesting to me when it's done, but I've been frustrated that I've not been working on it to get it done. So I look forward to a status. Nice. I'll go back to you, Lee. What have you been listening to since you teased us with that before? Two things, and I've been deep, deep on this. The first is the biggest keyboard shred collab in the world. I don't know if you guys have seen this. No. No. Prague Space sponsored it. It actually was started by Mood Yasin, Lebanese prog keyboardist from the band Turbulence. He started an online collaboration with about 25 of the best keyboardists playing. It ended up being about 12 minutes, I think. And this is a lot of the top keyboardists you guys would know. Yost Vandenbroek, Vikram Shankar, Gerald Peter, David Van Pelt. Jesus. Yeah, it's a huge list. And it's got some prog metal sections. It's got some airy ethereal sections. But the two parts that killed me is right in the middle. There is some solo acoustic piano work. One is by Richard Blumenthal, and that doesn't surprise me because I've seen him play before, and Mm -hmm. he's an amazing musician. But the other one is a woman that goes by the handle K-O Rhythm, K-A-O-R-H-Y-T-H-M. And I'm telling our listeners right now, you will want to go to her YouTube channel and subscribe. She only has 91 followers right now with, I think, like four or five songs. But I am telling you, you will be hearing about this person for a long time. She is incredible. Wait, what is her name? Her name is Kaori, but she goes by K.O. Rhythm on her YouTube channel. Oh, no. nice. Yeah, she does a cover of Tooth and Claw by Animals as Leaders on acoustic piano, and it is amazing. Nice. Yeah, but back to the collaboration. Killer, killer piece of music, and i am been listening to it all day long, all the different keyboards in this thing. Oh, cool. If you're going to go listen to this, don't do it on Prog Space. They keep chopping it up. Go to YouTube. They have a YouTube, and you can hear the entire piece, and it's great. And I'll make sure the URL is in the show notes. All right. And the second one I'm down on, thanks to Andy West, I really got into Henry Kaiser. Oh, man. You'll hear it in the interview that follows. But holy crap, this guy is one of the most prolific musicians there is. Dude, we're going to do an unheard of on him in like 30 seconds. Good. 63 albums just as the leader, not as the collaborator. Mm -hmm. And on Bandcamp, I count 60 albums alone. And I've been deep diving on his stuff that's a little more experimental. It's got to feel like Captain Beefheart, kind of zappy E. He does a whole variety of different genres. That's cool. This will be great because you'll hear him in the unheard of. So Yeah, I got some clips. That's what I've been deep diving on. Okay, cool. What about you, Craig? What have you been listening to? Well, aside from Henry Kaiser, I've actually been listening to a bunch of Herbie Hancock. We started doing a Herbie Hancock cover, Chameleon, which is just a vamp in, I think it's B-flat. 
And I've been going back and listening to some of his old stuff. And much like, you know, Miles, he started out in the traditional jazz genre and got fusiony and then got, you know, a watermelon manny and synthy and all that kind of thing. Very rich career and incredible piano player. So that's what I've been listening to. Awesome. For me, I am still way, way down the rabbit hole on the Ocean Collective. I keep finding more layers to what this band does. And I'm well past the three listen thing at this point. (laughs) I even was listening to some of their early stuff over the past week or so. When they go real instrumental, no vocals, because they do typically use growler vocals, that they're like an angry LTE. And I really, really like that yeah. a lot. It's bringing out more of the metal side of what I'm into cool. right now. Dude, I got to see them back up Catatonia. I know. And I was so jealous of that. And that's like the third time I think I've seen them live. And they are just as good live. Amazing. I know. Yep. I've only seen them live once. That was with you. Yeah. And even with that situation where like their lead singer was off in the wings because he had like broken his leg. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. They were still killer alive. (laughs) That's what I've been listening to. Lee, why don't you give us some news and new releases for this month? Vola has just announced they are coming back to the U.S., and I am super psyched about it. September 15th at the Bluebird in Denver. I've already bought my tickets, and they are working on a new album. They are a Danish band from Copenhagen that I really, really like. Who are they? Vola. Is it Prague? I think we woke up in an alternate universe. No, actually, they're disco, but I thought I'd put them in here anyway. That seems legit. Just for a break, you know. They are heavy prog, dude. They're uh, very heavy prog rock, and they mm-hmm. drift into prog metal periodically. Cool. Avkarvist, again, A-V-K-R-V-S-T. I am really liking this band. Their new release is not out yet, but they do have two debut tracks, The Pale Moon and Arcane Clouds. And all they will say is new album in 2023. Dream Sonic Tour, Dream Theater, Devin Townsend, and Animals as Leaders. Yep. So I bought my tickets for that one, too, because I really want to see Devin Townsend and Animals as Leaders. Mm -hmm. Can't wait. And that's a theater I also want to go to. Which theater is that at? That's the Mission Theater. That's one of the new ones. Yeah, it's one of those new ones that's, like, flexible, and you can change the size of the auditorium. Off of I-70. Yeah, it's Rhino. New Jethro Tull Rogue Float came out April 21st, and I have not listened, but I know Tony has. Yeah, so I kind of got a good joke out of Craig earlier today. (laughs) I think in general on this album, I will give them credit that they mic'd it really well, and it's got a really great flute tone. The first couple of minutes of the first couple of tracks, they do a really, really great job of weaving back and forth between some flute and some synth. And then the vocals kick in, and I was like, eh. And then the rest of it was kind of meh for me. and so. I refer to this Jethro Tull as Jethro Dull. And by the way, I have been reaching out to Ian Anderson to do an interview, and that's probably not going to happen now. Yeah. So thanks. We, we can talk right. about it. <laughs> Matt Dorsey, the bassist vocalist from Sound of Contact, his solo album came out April 7th, Let Go. Mm-hmm. And I have not listened yet. I am sorry. I got too deep down the rabbit hole, but I will by next month. New mystery coming out. In May, Peter Gabriel still will not release any album release dates, just tour dates. Yes, new album, Mirror to the Sky, May 19th. And I don't know if I care. That's in the Jethro Dull vein. They can back each other up on the Meh tour. 
the band geeks are getting wonderful press for touring with John Anderson. I don't know if you've been reading that. I did read that. Um, the Ocean Collective new album Holocene and Tony and I both are really looking forward to that. That yeah. is May 19th. And finally, Einar Solberg, the Leprous vocalist, his solo album is coming out July 2nd. And he released another teaser. I didn't really like this I one. I like it. As I said before, it's right in the vein of Leprous for me. Yeah. There is one other one I want to make sure we mention in here, um, which is also on May 19th. It's Aryan Lucas's Supersonic Revolution, the Golden Age of Music. Uh. So if, if you're at all like me and you're in the sphere of Aryan Lucasin, that's a good one. Uh, they've done a few teaser videos. Definitely, if you are an Arion fan, this is not going to be the prog metal side of that or even the metal side like Star One. This is very much a prog rock album. Right. And the only other one I want to mention here is actually a tour thing. Camelot will be kicking off a North America tour. Ooh. Oh, nice. And Camelot is going to have some more metal folks backing them up on this tour. They're having uh, Battle Beast and Xandria come with them. So this is going to be my metal night, uh, not my prog metal night. I may have to do that. The North American tour starts in August, and then they will be here in Denver, August 25th or 26th, sometime in there. Where are they playing? Especially Camelot, and I'm a big fan of Battle Beast. Um, They're going to be at the Ogden here. Oh, cool. That's a good venue for Camelot. I've seen them there before. They do really, really well on that I venue. I like Camelot. And Pattern Seeking Animals and Kairos, both are in post-production, but that's going to be the fall. That's been going on forever. It has. That brings us to what you were teasing a little bit earlier, Craig. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about Mr. Kaiser and your unheard of here? Henry Kaiser, as far as I was concerned, he was unheard of. And spoiler alert for the interview with Andy West, he talks about Henry Kaiser and when he said he played with Henry Kaiser and I was like, never heard of Henry Kaiser. His reaction was like, WTF? How do you not know who Henry Kaiser is? Yeah. And I mean it with ultimate respect. So I thought, well, I should start looking into who this Henry Kaiser fella is. And like you said, Lee, absolutely fascinating. Oh my God. Yeah. First of all, his personal history, he is the grandson of American industrialist Henry Kaiser of Kaiser Shipbuilding fame, of Kaiser Broadcasting fame, of Kaiser Automotive fame, of Kaiser Permanente fame, and also was the founder of the Kaiser Family Foundation. Yes, I kept getting that when I was Googling it, and I'm like, this can't be the guy. Yeah, it's like he made a ship. Yeah, (laughs) but then it turns out it's his grandson. He's a guitarist, he's a composer, he's a Grammy nominee, um, has a very uh, unique sort of style. He's been a sideman, as you said, hundreds of albums. He also is a film score composer. Now, when you read interviews with him, none of those are his jobs. Those are all his hobbies. His real job is he's an underwater researcher <laughs> and underwater video. He's like freaking Buckaroo Bonsai. I man. saw that. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. He's done a whole bunch of videography up in the Antarctic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have a clip of a soundtrack that he did to some video that he shot. It's cool video. So you should look it up on YouTube and watch it. I would say it's a flavor of his style, but his style is so all over the place that you can't really capture it. I don't even know what to say. That's a lot. Especially like if I'm watching 
a diving video uh-huh. and I see that. I think of Henry Kaiser. It works. <laughs> it, no, it totally works. It definitely, definitely Google it. It sounds kind of Adrian Blue to me, to be honest. That is a killer baseline. Mm-hmm. The work that he was Grammy nominated for, he recorded an album of world music with David Lindley of David Lindley and El Rey OX fame, who actually just passed away last month. They would travel around the world and go to different places and record with local musicians. And they did an album with some Madagascar musicians. It's called A World Out of Time, Henry Kaiser and David Lindley in Madagascar. So let's listen to a track of that. The whole album isn't like that. There are a little bit more R&B kind of stuff, but this kind of captured a nice acoustic piece. That track is called Hitondre Tsikitski. It is a traditional Madagascar tune. I thought it would be interesting to give you just a flavor of the people that he's played with, because it's pretty impressive. Herbie Hancock, Richard Thompson, David Lindley, John Jumbo French, Barbara Higby, Michael Stipe, Henry Cal, Bill Frizzell, the Golden Calaminos, Greg Allman, Ryuichi Sakamoto, Kazumi Watanabe, who I love, by the way, played with pretty much everybody from the Grateful Dead and, of course, Andy West. Yes. He's just played with a buttload of people. I think uh, I might do a uh, a bootleg or something about the guy because just fascinating polymath, multi, whatever you want to call him. And he's obviously spent spent a ton of time developing his craft as a style all his own. He's got a tremendous amount of respect in the community. Cool. Again, there's a lot more we can say. I have one final clip. He played with Herbie Hancock, as we were talking about, and that fascinated me. So I have a clip of that, and it's from Herbie's synth phase, kind of the 80s time period. So there's a sample in it, and in the spirit of This is Prague, uh, see if you recognize the sample. That is tickling engrams, but I can't think of what it is. It's a latter day yes song. It is. And I can't place the title. You're right. It's, it is uh, Tickling the Neurons. Yeah. Anyway, if any of our listeners uh, can identify that sample, uh, we'll send you a t-shirt. Cool. Yeah, just add us on Twitter or Mastodon. That uh, song was called Metal Beat off the album Sound System, which sounds as kind of art of noise, if you ask me. But Yeah, I'd agree with that. Cool. Anyway, that's Henry Kaiser. I don't want to steal Andy West's thunder, but uh, I thought it was interesting to get some background. And speaking of, let's go talk to Andy West. First of all, thank you so much for joining us. For me, it's special. These guys know that I'm a total fangirl when it comes to the Dixie Dregs. (laughs) Nice. The way this happened, we were at the Cars meetup a few months ago that we talked to the fans about. And I ran into a guy, his name was Anthony, and he had just put out an album called The MC2 Project. And he mentioned that a local bass player named Gonzalo Tepa, a local Denver bass player. I know him just from the community. And I called him out on it and said, oh man, you got Gonzalo on this? He's like, yeah, but I'll tell you what, man, I got Andy West on this next album. And I'm like, the bass player who used to play for the Dixie Dregs, his name was Andy West too. (laughs) And he's like, that's who I got. 
And we talked somewhere and he said, yeah, Andy's a great guy, man. I'll introduce you guys. The rest is history. So uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, welcome, Andy. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's great to be here. Uh, just to add a little bit of color to that story. It's interesting because I met Anthony through a mutual acquaintance via a software connection. I have also been in the software business since 1985, really, and more or less retired from that world a couple of years ago, 2017. But when you've been in it that long, you don't actually ever get out of it. Right. <laughs> Through a variety of different kind of startups and just kind of consulting with people and talking to friends and so on and so forth. I kind of stay active in that to some degree, although not on a full-time basis. And so that's how I met Anthony. He basically runs a software company. Uh We just started talking. I don't think he was even really aware of the dregs per se. He said he was a musician. I saw a guitar in the background of a Zoom meeting. We started talking Uh and we just kind of hit it off. And then after he found out that I could play the bass, (laughs) He was like, can you play something on one of our things? You know, he wanted me to play on the whole album. I said, look, I work at a glacial rate. (laughs) People will send me a file and then I'll listen to it for a long time or maybe I won't get around to listening to it. But I take a long time and I do my own thing with this. I'm not a journeyman musician by any means. I know how to do one thing. I can play in the dregs and I can play my own stuff. There you go. That's two things. Okay. You know, that, that's not yeah, a bad yeah. resume. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, three things because I can also play my own stuff in somebody else's context. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I don't really do well, like, okay, we want this to be sort of like the bass player in Foo Fighters, right. you know, or whatever. Sure. That doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Much respect to the people who can do that. That's just not me. Yeah. So we hit it off. He sent me all of his scratch tunes, and I picked out the one that's called Time Flow. It's mm-hmm. like a, basically a five with this repeated pattern, and I just really liked it. And it had him playing a bass line, and I said, okay, send me the tracks without the bass, <laughs> you know, so I can kind of hear it and feel it and figure out what it is that I want to do. Was there like a bass track from a keyboard, or did he have some other bass player? Or? No, he played his bass. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I should say that in terms of introduction to this podcast, he said, I met these guys from this Prague <laughs> podcast. And, and I was like, what? A Prague podcast? Okay. And they said, yeah, here's where they mentioned it. you know. And so I went and listened to the podcast and I listened to more than just what he said. But mm-hmm. what I found interesting about what you guys did was you were talking about bass players. And I was like, wow, these guys are really into <laughs> bass players. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> so anyhow, that's my intro to you guys. That's that, great. That's, that's cool. awesome. So this is not related to it, but I just remembered one of my favorite jokes from a comedian who passed away a couple years ago. He goes, I'm not a bassist. I just hate people that play the bass. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Who said that? That was a comedian named Deacon Gray here in Denver. Oh, nice. I just thought that's that's one of my favorite jokes in the world. Yeah, that's a good one. You know, this is a prog rock podcast, so I have to ask, how'd you get into software? Okay. So the brief history of the dregs is that I met Steve Morse in high school when Mm -hmm. I was 16 and he was 15. And we started bands and that whole thing. And that lasted really until I was 30. And we had done six albums together, six commercial albums. And the band, it just had gotten to a point where we weren't getting any further. And we just decided to all take a break from it. Mm-hmm. That was how I moved to California. Mm-hmm. Because I was just like, okay, I'm living in Atlanta. There's nothing going on here. I really love California. And I'm in Arizona right now. But mm-hmm moved out west. As I mentioned, I know how to do a couple of things on the bass. 
And back then there was no internet. So there was no way to connect with people uh-huh. really, other than if you advertised somewhere or had a major network of people you were calling on the phone, literally, mm-hmm. which I didn't. So I kind of beat around and I did lessons and I tried playing with some people and stuff. It just really wasn't a career at that point for me anymore. I had always been interested in computers. I had one of the first portable computers, which is called an Osborne computer. It looks like a giant sewing machine. Yeah, we're in the biz. We're in the industry. So. We're all in tech. Oh, okay, cool. So I learned how to program in, in DBase, um. you know, all of the <laughs> gigs that we had and the promoters, you know, basically like an address book and a calendar and you know, a spreadsheet. I think it was SuperCalc at the time that ran on CPM. <laughs> And so I had an affinity for computers, but I had a roommate in California who was a programmer and he taught me C and I went to like a trade school to try and get some legitimacy around programming. Mm -hmm. We actually were doing the punch cards, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh man! but it got me a foot in the door. Back then, if you knew how to do something, you could get a job. You know, it wasn't so much based on a credential. Yeah. So I learned how to program in C, and then it went from there through all the languages you can imagine. I'm sort of a polyglot in that sense. <laughs> First, I really liked programming, and I even got a job working for a company called Hybrid Arts, where they were one of the first companies to do a DAW oh, wow. on the Atari. Sure. Uh-huh. And so I learned the whole gem desktop operating system, and it was all mainly C, but <laughs> it was funny because I remember, great, I'm turning in my invoices. And I'm going to go meet the guy who's going to pay me. And okay, meet me on Tuesday. I'll be there. I go there. He's not there. <laughs> I ended up just not getting paid for a lot of work. So just like the music business. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it was the same kind of thing. And at that point, I said, all right, from now on, I'm a mercenary and I'm only going to work for companies that have money. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's what I did uh, for a long time. I was a contract programmer and then I got into technical architecture and then. Oh, wow. executive management of software and all that kind of stuff. And so I had a whole career. It worked out really good for me. Did you ever cross paths with Roger Powell? You know, I did actually. For Tony and Lee, that's Todd Rundgren's keyboard player. Oh, I know exactly who Roger Powell is. He actually worked for a short time for another company that I worked for called Waveframe. Yes. Yeah, that's how I know him. Okay. Right. Yeah, that was up in Boulder. We're all in Colorado. I mean, it's this is really obscure history and probably of no interest to anyone. Except our, our 27 listeners. Right. Okay, good. I guarantee you, Andy, that our particular demographic will find everything you're saying fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. <laughs> so if you recall, I said, okay, got to get some legitimacy. I went to school at a like a computer learning center kind of thing. Mm-hmm. My very first job was in tech support for a company called NBI, which was also based in Boulder. They were like a word processing company, competitor to Wang Systems. You know, this was pre-PC all this time. Mm-hmm. It turns out that one of the founders of NBI, who I guess made enough money to start another company, started Waveframe. Oh, really? Got it. So there was this weird thread running through there. and wow. They had an amazing product that was maybe a little bit too late for the world. Yeah, it was kind of too late and too early. Right. It was too late because Synclavier was already there, yeah. mm-hmm. but they were way more expensive. So what I'm saying they were too early was because they were underpricing Synclavier and they had a lot more features, mm-hmm. but the software and hardware was moving so fast right. yeah. mm-hmm. that eventually it just became like, why are we spending fifty or $100,000? Yeah, like two years later, I bought my M1. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> 
what are you working on now? I was online and I stumbled on something that was just posted from a guy named Henry Kaiser that you played on. Yeah. So I met him in 94. He's just a very interesting guy, really amazing. A musicologist, I learned so much from him, but his whole orientation was in Captain Beefheart style music. Mm, yeah. Just really angular, weird guitar stuff. Mm -hmm. So Henry and I somehow hit it off and started playing together. And he said, oh, well, you want to go do this thing in Frankfurt? It was like 1986, a jazz festival. Sure. <laughs> he calls up this Swedish drummer. And we did some really weird, weird stuff. It was called Crazy Backwards Alphabet. I don't know if Prague guys are aware of Beefheart. I mean, I wasn't, you know, until Henry sort of got me back into it. Yeah. Really weird music and really interesting. And if you tune into it correctly, it's great. Well, there's a Zappa Beefheart connection, isn't there? Yes. Yeah, definitely. He was on um, whatever Zappa's label was at that time. Yeah, Discreet, maybe? Barking Pumpkin, maybe? It was pre that, I think. Okay. Bizarre Records or something. I don't know. Anyhow, that's when I met Henry. But what was really interesting was the Crazy Backwards Alphabet album, which has a version of LaGrange on it, the ZZ Top song, <clears throat> with the drummer singing it in Swedish. It's a very bizarre <laughs> thing if you look it up on YouTube. I think we're going to drop a clip in right about here. <laughs> So I meet Mike Keneally, who's former Zappa guitar player. You know, I don't know anything about Mike, except I had heard his album called Hat, his very first album. Mm -hmm. They were playing at NAMM, and they had this band with Dweezil Zappa. Mike was playing guitar. Brian Beller was playing bass. Brian Beller is a bass player for the Aristocrats. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Guthrie Govan. He also plays in Joe Satriani's touring band. Yep. And he's played with Death Clock and a bunch of others. I mean, Brian is an amazing bassist. Anyhow, those guys played something which was like a 25-minute medley of about 15 seconds of every rock song of the era. Right. That's awesome. And it was this long, massive thing, and they played it by memory. It was just shockingly great. And so I was at the NAMM show. I heard this. I walked up, and I said, oh, Mike, you know, really nice to meet you. I'm Andy. I played in the dregs. He says, oh, yeah. I really love your crazy backwards alphabet album. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't mention the dregs at all, you know? I mean, of course, he was a fan of the dregs, but, but I just thought, oh, this is interesting. He's, he's mentioning what I just did. Yeah. We became friends. And Henry, Mike, myself, Prairie Prince, who's just another great oh, yeah. drummer from the, the tubes. tubes and, yeah. you know, Jefferson Starship. He's an incredible drummer. We did an album together called The Mistakes which you can also find on Mike Keneally's site. And, and this was in like 94, 95. 
I think it's a great album. It's really, really neat. And there is some proggy stuff on there. Cool. If you take a listen to that, I think you might enjoy it. So those are some more way in the past history connections. Gotcha. And so Henry has done this massive series of things that he started in pandemic lockdown. Mm -hmm. And he's done some really interesting things. He did three albums with David Lindley, where they had a bunch of Madagascar local musicians playing on all this stuff. Wow. He did a couple with him from Norway, where they had Norwegian music. Look, the music is not for everybody, but it's got something very cool going on in there. And so Henry just calls me up every now and again and says, hey, you want to play on this thing? <laughs> and so one of the things we did was a guitar player friend of his named Scott Colby, plays slide guitar, really wanted to do this ancient Spencer Davis song from like 1973 or something called Gluggo. Dude, I've been listening to that song over and over again since I knew we were going to talk to you. And I'm infatuated with that song. It's amazing, isn't it? And the video, Henry cut the, the video in there. Yeah, the video is incredible. Is, yeah. What is that? It's like a Busby Berkeley dance number or something? Well, okay, so it's crazy. It's a thing called Madam Satan, and it was made in 1931. <laughs> okay. The video is just so weird. You can't even imagine, like, how could they even think of that back then, right, you know, right. and, and yet pull it off. Mm-hmm. Turns out that there was a period of time between silent movies and talkie movies, like 27 to 34, where everyone who was observing Hollywood at the time thought that the culture was collapsing with the evils of Hollywood. And so they had this period of time called the pre-code time. Uh I've heard of that. Yeah. Afterwards was the code. And it was like this code. Okay, you're not going to show. That's when Dick Van Dyke and... Mary Tyler Moore started sleeping in separate beds. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> you can't show interracial couples. You can't talk about homosexuality. You can't do anything that's going to you know, destroy society as we know it. So this movie was during that time when they could just do anything and anything was happening. The song itself is great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to kind of YouTube rabbit holing on Henry Kaiser some more. Yeah, he's great. So how did Rama happen? Lee's a Rama fan. I am a Rama fan. And I've been listening to it. Like the song Resonance is wonderful. The piano solo is amazing. Obviously, your bass work is wonderful. Thank you. So how did that happen? In 1992, I moved from LA to Chicago. After the dregs, I kind of beat around and I started my computer career. Uh And then I was part of this group called Zazen. We were inspired a lot by Tangerine Dream type stuff, although we had a lot more fusion-y kind of sound to it. That went on for a number of years. And then when that broke up, I moved to Chicago. I got a new job. 
And I was reading the newspaper in Chicago, and I found this guitar player named Toshi Aseda, who was given lessons. And I thought, oh, this guy seems pretty interesting. Let me meet him. And so I started a group there in Chicago, and we called it Rama. It was a bunch of tunes to ideas that I had, starting with bass parts. Mm -hmm. But then I wrote a lot of synthesizer parts. At that point, had become quite used to working with sequencers. Mm -hmm. Digital Performer was my one of choice at that point. And so I wrote a bunch of songs, and then I really wanted to do this album. I called up Mike, and I said, look, I've been working on this thing for a couple of years. I really need some help finishing it. And so he came to my house, and in five days, we finished recording like the parts that I didn't have that he heard, mm-hmm. like the vocals on um, Old Meat Frame <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and some of the guitar leads. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, previous to that, I just called up some people to do things. Mike Portnoy plays drums on on one of the, two of the songs, mm-hmm. and Jonathan Mover plays on one. And those connections were made by Toshi. He was real aggressive about calling people and trying to get people involved. <laughs> That was kind of right at the turn of time when records started to mean nothing. <laughs> mm-hmm. huh. Sure, sure. In terms of, of sales. I really liked the label. They had a lot of stuff on that label. Steve Morse did albums on that label, but they were struggling. You know, nothing really ever happened with it. And I didn't want to spend another $20,000 to do a record. Yeah. That was that. So no thought of touring with that. Toshi and I had a band for a while in Chicago, but Mm -hmm. doing a band is just really hard. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I really like the edge that that album has. Oh, cool. Thank you. It's got a fusion band, but just the rough edge it's got, it just really attracted me. I'm very proud of that record. I mean, because I, I, I didn't really set out to do any kind of concept. It's just what was happening at the time. In terms of my own music, there are some really funny things on there. Cubit, I really like because it's just so odd. I got Kit Watkins to play on a tomb, kind of like the gods of Prague to me. Uh Uh (laughs) Yeah. You know, if I think about the origins of Prague, I think of it like Gentle Giant, Yes, Mm -hmm. and this band Happy the Man. Interesting. I haven't heard someone talk about Happy the Man for a long time. Yeah. Heard of that. Well, that's reaching way back. What do you like about Happy the Man? What uh, makes them one of the big three for you? Well, their compositions were just really, really great. Maybe it was also the context because when we did our first album, our producer was a guy named Stuart Levine, and the record company was the ones who kind of got him. Mm-hmm. We had wanted Ken Scott to produce. Mm-hmm. Ken had produced Ma Vision Orchestra, and of course, we were very derivative of Ma Vision Orchestra. Sure. We didn't sound like them, but we took them as massive inspiration. And in college, we were almost like a Ma Vishnu cover band. I mean, we learned all the songs on the first two albums, Intermounting mm-hmm. Flame and Birds of Fire. Yeah. That alone was like going to school in so many ways. But Ken produced both of those albums, so we wanted Ken to produce us. It turns out that he had also produced Happy the Man, along with a bunch of other people like David Bowie and 
Super Tramp. He was engineer on the White Album. He actually got a credit on the Beatles' White Album. This guy has been amazing. But that's how I found out about Happy the Man was because of Ken as a producer. They were just two keyboard players. Each keyboard player also played some kind of wind instrument, guitar player and drummer. And it was just very complex, very upbeat, very unique music. Right. So Ken Scott came along for What If album first. Yeah, he did What If and Night of the Living Dregs. What did he do different? Because there's such a dramatic difference to the untrained ear production-wise between Freefall and What If. Kind of what changed besides Ken? Uh, that's pretty much what it was. I mean, when we heard our first album, <laughs> I mean, listening to it now, it makes me smile. I like it. You know, it's very innocent in a way, right? Mm -hmm. But we wanted a big sound. We wanted the heavy drums. We wanted the crunchy guitars, you know, all this stuff. And the guy who produced us was really more into Motown. Mm -hmm. I see that blues and stuff, you know? And so he was, it was very plain. And first time we heard the final mix, we we're like, all of us are just with our heads down. Like, oh my God, this doesn't sound like us. And it didn't. I mean, if you saw us back then, we would be like a crashing, loud, high energy band. At some point, you mentioned that the dregs kind of ran out of gas. Yeah, that was after Industry Standard in 1983. We talk about this a lot on the show, that there's so many bands that have just this peak output period of like eight to 10 years or something like that. Uh -huh. What do you think happens since you lived it? Yeah, it's interesting. With the exception of the people who passed away in our band history, mm -hmm. all of the guys still play and everyone is active in their own way. But we came up in a time when there was a lot of gatekeeping, if you will, to getting in a studio. It cost a lot of money. Mm. You had to have connections. You had to find a record company who was going to pay for this stuff unless you were independently wealthy, which I didn't know anybody at the time who was. None of us did. So there's a kind of organic togetherness and power that comes from being young and driven. <laughs> sure. I mean, we were out there pushing, you know, we pushed and pushed and pushed in the South, played wherever we could and all the normal stuff that you hear people talk about from back then. But it was kind of like character building and building our ability to play this stuff at a high level. Yeah. That's what did that for us. It's like we were a bonded group who was into it and worked really hard. Mm -hmm. For all of us, when we heard Steve's music, we all got behind it. None of us were like, oh, I can do that. <laughs> we're all like, wow, I wonder what he's going to do next, you know, yeah, in terms right, of composition. Yeah. That's really interesting because we've talked about in some bands, especially with like a very prominent persona like that, that there tends to be at least some friction that builds up. Did that happen for you guys? Not at all. That's amazing. I think that is unusual. I think in terms of running out of gas, we were just frustrated with the lack of success. You know, we had reached a certain point uh -huh. and we weren't going any further each time. You know, nowadays it would seem like a lot. I mean, we could sell 100,000 albums, but that's what we would do every time. Uh 
Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And it seemed like we weren't getting to play bigger places. We weren't making more money. Yeah. It was costing more money to do everything. But being behind the music in terms of what Steve was coming up with, we were always into it. Mm-hmm. And he was so challenging in the way that he would write. Uh-huh. When we got back together and did this little tour four or five years ago. We were there. Yep. Oh, cool. Yeah, you guys at the Boulder <laughs> Theater? Yeah, the Boulder. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so when we, when we got back together to do that, I went back and had to relearn some of those songs that I hadn't played <laughs> in 40 years. Right. And I was like, how the hell did we do? How, you know, what is going <laughs> yeah, on? I bet. Were my fingers really able to do that 20? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you probably saw Steve, he's got this brace on his arm. And yeah, yeah. There were some things that he just was like, yeah, we're not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. It looks like he's kind of adapted though. Like he figured he's kind of like changed his style and yeah. pulls it off, you know? Yeah, it's true. But age definitely entered into it. And so there's a youthful power that's undeniable, mm-hmm. really. And if you have a leading force like we did, it led to something. What was your interaction like with your label? Were they supporting you guys or were they trying to steer you? It was hilarious. <laughs> oh, God. That, that's an awesome lead into <laughs> yeah, that's a good label. Deal. <laughs> Even though we were not a Southern rock band, we were from the South and we yes. had that kind of influential thing going on, you know? And it said Dixie in your name. Which, as you probably have read, was a joke. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but we kept it because we're ridiculous ourselves. <laughs> but Capricorn signed us and they were the only label that would. Kudos to those guys and all the people on the team there. They really liked our music. And that was the label that the Allman Brothers were on at the time, right? That's correct. The Allman Brothers and all the Southern rock bands, Marshall Tucker Band, Black Oak, Arkansas. I mean, it was crazy. Black you know? Oak, Arkansas. Wow. But it really conceptually was not a fit. So that was kind of strange. Mm-hmm. But when we were promoting Night of Living Dregs, we were out on tour in California and playing for nothing, really, just trying to promote the record. And they were supposed mm-hmm. to give us some money to help with tour support. And I was the one who was kind of helping manage the band. We had a manager, but I was in the mix. And we called Capricorn. We kept calling them saying, we're out on the road. We can't pay for shit. God. And, oh, yeah, any day, any day. And then finally we called and the the line was disconnected. Oh, Oh, my God. Yeah. Mm. And they filed for bankruptcy. So that was ridiculous. And then our manager at the time, who turned out to be a shyster and stole a bunch of money from us, got us a deal with Arista, which was great. So we were supposed to provide them an album every year. And there was a first two years and a second two years. Like trenches. Uh Yeah. And they didn't know what to do with us either. I mean, it, <laughs> it was just very strange. We have heard this story so many times, Andy. Yeah. Why do you think a label would sign a band that they have no concept of how to promote? Well, back then, they were just thinking that they liked it. And they saw that other people liked it. I mean, Clive Davis came and saw us play at the bottom line in Manhattan. And people were freaking out when we played there. You know, they Mm -hmm. loved us. I mean, he has some sensibility about him, but, you know, all of his minions are like, okay, well, here's another band. You know, we're supposed to do what? Who Uh, are these guys? What is this all about? You know, but it didn't really work out. Mm -hmm. We did two albums and then the third album came along. We thought, okay, well, you've been telling us that vocals matter. So we had done a small tour with the Doobie Brothers. We made friends with Pat Simmons. Mm-hmm. We'd done some stuff with Kansas. We made friends with Steve Walsh. Hey, how about if you guys want to sing on this record? Okay, well, we'll do some rock songs and see what happens. 
And we did that and they did nothing. It was blasphemous. And Jethro Tull wanted us to tour with them. I literally received a phone call from the tour manager saying, the guys in the band want you to open them up. All we need is your record company is to buy some spots in the cities that you play. So I get with the manager, I'm talking to him, and Erisa goes, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. No. Oh, my God. So that's the kind of shenanigans. And then I, I remember after we did this album with the two rock stars, we're like, okay, can we do a video? Because this is 1983. Videos sure. are just coming online. Yep. MTV's mm-hmm. been around. I literally was in a room with, a, with an exec who had a long career after this, who said, yeah, we're not really sure if video sells records. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Are you freaking kidding me? That's the only way you sell records. That's you know? Yeah. So a lot of shenanigans like that. And, you know, it just kind of devolved. Yeah. So you mentioned that everybody in the dregs all got along. Everything was cool. I read somewhere that T. Lavitz was just a total character. And I wanted to see if you have any stories of that because it didn't really come across on stage. He was always a really intense player. Yeah, Tia and I were very good friends, and you know, unfortunately, he passed away. Right. There were some Spinal Tap moments. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a section in Cruise Control where Steve would do this really long solo. He'd play like twenty minutes in a drum solo. So Tia and I would just kind of take off, and we'd go back to the dressing room and hang out. Sure. We'd hear the musical cue, and we'd go back out on stage. So we're in the dressing room, and we hear the cue. We get up, and we can't get out. <laughs> the door was somehow locked from the outside and we couldn't get out and we're like banging on the door and of course it's getting louder and louder because steve is giving you really loud and they're just going mad and finally one of the roadies figured out where are those guys you know and he came back and opened the door and we ran out so were you on time or was steve just had to keep noodling in g minor (laughs) They had to just keep noodling, and it was not a pleasant thing when we finally got on stage, (laughs) if looks could kill kind of vibe, you know? Oh, my goodness. We met T. Rod had heard him play at the University of Miami somehow. We were playing in Florida. We went and saw him play at a a bar. He was doing jazz standards. Mm -hmm. Seemed like a great guy. Okay, yeah, I'd love to join you guys. He gets in the band. We think we're doing great, because now we've got three albums out and we're not living completely hand to mouth we've figured out okay if we tour for two or three weeks we can take a week or two off and then we can tour again and we can just kind of pay ourselves like a normal thing you know Mm -hmm. but it wasn't very much money it was like 300 bucks a week Mm -hmm. so we tell t all right man you can be in the band we're gonna pay you 250 bucks a week and he's like what you know, because he was making more than that in the bar. say, yeah, you make that at a bar at the Holiday Inn. We tried to convince him how it all worked. He got in the band. He was with us for about four or five months. And we said, all right, we're going to make you an official member of the band. You're definitely in. 
we bought this truck. We bought this band house so that we could practice. We're going to raise your rate, but we're going to keep paying you the same so that you can buy into these things and then you'll own them along with us. And I just remember he was just so shocked by the whole thing. And (laughs) we always had jokes in our titles, like take it off the top. You know, we're the last ones to get paid. Oh, God. (laughs) Blood sucking leeches. That that one's obvious. (laughs) So I have an anecdote that I've always wanted to share with you. The dregs had broken up. Steve Morse was touring solo, and I think he was playing with Alan Holdsworth, and this is a bar in Philly, and he was standing out front. I'm in line with this girl that I'm dating. You're taking a girl to see Steve Morse and Alan Holdsworth? (laughs) (laughs) We're not together anymore. (laughs) So anyhow, you were out there in front of Philly. Yeah, yeah, so we're out there, and um, I had uh, turned her on to uh, What If. Okay. The album. So it turns out that Steve is standing out front and I am totally tongue tied, you know, because I'm starstruck. And so she jumps in and goes, Oh, I love your guys' music. And I got to say, my favorite song is called Travel Tunes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. But Steve has such a dry sense of humor. I'm sure that he said something entirely appropriate. I I don't remember because I was flabbergasted. (laughs) So just to let you guys know, uh, Lee and Tony, um, Steve Morse wrote the entire canon of Dixie Dregs songs, except for that one that Andy wrote. Okay, (laughs) got it. I'm like, no. Oh, that's awesome. That is so cool. I'm sure (laughs) Steve loved it, though. to have a joke in the band i mean the only women that would come to see us play were dragged there by their guitar playing boyfriend <laughs> yeah that tracks yeah uh, that's you know funny. it just is the way it is but uh i have one question though that i do want to ask you that's totally obscure i'm a bit of a musician and i play along with every dregs album and on night meets light when i try and play along with that it's either a little bit sharp or a little bit flat relative to like the real frequency was the tape stretched or something i noticed that too when i was relearning some of these songs i'm like this is not standard pitch you know it's like something weird but um yeah if that happened it was entirely incidental I first heard you guys in 80 or 81, and I was living in Florida, and I was in somebody's garage, and he played Odyssey, and I'm like, oh, is that a new Kansas album? Yeah. And um, no, he told me it was the Dixie Dregs. And then I went back to school in Philly and saw you guys at the Walnut Theater, and it was the tour for Unsung Heroes. Yeah. But you opened with Divided We Stand, and it's just you. Yeah. Doom, doom, yeah. Doom, 
That was the first song, and it was, as soon as that song finished, my life musically just changed. At that point, I seeked out all your guys' albums and have become a devoted draghead, and still, to this day, bug all my friends and drag them to drag shows. When Well, that's cool. Thank you. It had an effect on me, too, and all of us, really. I mean, it's, it's just Steve's composition, and he wrote for the band. So there's something about... Mm-hmm that group of people and what he wrote at that time that's very different. I mean, he still has written some amazing things since then, but that's kind of a cohesive collection, if you will, you know? Uh When we decided to try and do this reunion tour, and I think all of us really had the idea, gee, you know, this music should be heard. It's really different. Sure. And there's something there. Now, it's not for everybody, you know, and everyone doesn't hear it like that, but, you know, you're an example of one who did, so thank you. Cool. I'm interested in your thoughts on where the industry is these days with things like crowdfunding of albums and self-production of albums. Maybe even if you wanted to extend your thoughts into like self-production at home with like Pro Tools and stuff like that. And anyone that you think is a shining example of doing really cool stuff. The impedance to recording is now essentially gone. Mm -hmm. That's the double-edged sword of the quantity of music that's out there now. It's great. I mean, honestly, I love it. I mean, I love the fact that I can just sit down at a computer and record stuff. And people have learned how to use this stuff. They've also learned how to abuse it. Right. I'm a musician. You know, I'm dragging and dropping shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. You know, maybe you are. You know, I don't know. I think there's a lot of great music out there. In the prog world, I noticed that Inside Out... Mm -hmm seems to be the main sort of label for this type of thing. And there's a lot of great bands on that label. Mm -hmm. Personally, I have a lot of attraction to good musicianship. Not so much traditional jazz because there's so much of that. Although, again, deep respect for the people that can do it. I mean, it's like being a classical musician or something. You know, it's it's non-trivial to do that and to do it with any kind of real expressiveness. But I like a lot of synthesizer-based music. I like a lot of kind of ambient stuff. I don't know if you've heard of people like Steve Roach or Eric Wallow, these kind of guys. I find that music very attractive. And Mike Keneally, again, Devin Townsend, I mean, good grief, you know, his output and what he does. And the technology of listening to music is also interesting, too, because most people now don't really listen. Right. They just put it on while they're doing something else. Yeah. Even myself, I mean, I have an incredible sound system in my car. I've got a great little studio here. I will listen more in my car, although I occasionally force myself to go old school and just sit and listen, you know, shut mm-hmm. my eyes and listen and don't do anything else. And I think that's kind of a lost activity these days. Yeah. I, I, I think because they, they don't have album covers. Yeah. Because 
back in the day, it's like you would sit and listen and read the liner notes and yeah. see who everybody thanked and knew they have music contracts. Hey, I do want to mention the MC project one more time because I don't think I talked about that enough. Oh, please. The thing that was cool about meeting Anatoly, here's a guy who's got this whole other world going on. You know, he's running this software company, uh-huh. but he just loves playing. Yes. <laughs> you know, That's cool. and he's, and he, and he found a piano player who also just loves to play. Yeah. And, you know, she's a classically trained pianist from Russia and, and they became friends and family friends and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I just have a ton of respect for anybody that just wants to do that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. For some reason, that makes me just very hopeful that people still want to do that kind of thing. That is exactly yeah. what goes through my head when you were talking about that. Yeah. Well, Andy, this was just an absolute treat. Thank you again for all you've done. Try not to sound too uh, much like I'm blowing smoke. And uh, I really enjoyed uh, listening to you and talking to you. Well, thanks. I enjoyed talking to all you guys. Again, this is like a passion project or something. So oh, I'm God, a yeah. fan of that, you know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm a fan of that kind of activity. Cool. Good, cool. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thank you. Andy. You have a great night. Good luck. Take care. Bye. All Take right. Care. We'll see you then. Bye. Okay. Bye bye. I loved that interview. Maybe the my favorite episodes that we do are when we get people like Andy to mm-hmm. talk to us for a while. Well, I, I myself am humbled. I don't want to say it was a dream come true because that sounds a little too make a wish, but it was really wonderful talking to a, a hero. Any closing thoughts, Craig, based on the interview? I, I really appreciate you putting this together for us. No, like I said, it just was, it was a blast. Uh, it came together really quick. Shout out and thanks to a man here in town who uh, helped us out, mm-hmm. hooking us up. Just an absolute treat. Well, folks, as we exit, don't forget, we're on Instagram and Twitter at up 3 show. We're also on Mastodon at UP3Show on the Mastodon.social server, or you can contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. We definitely want to hear from everybody about the kinds of topics you'd like us to cover, feedback, and if you want to show this show some support, it's super easy. You can support us non-financially by subscribing to our podcast on Podbean at UP3Show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And if your particular service supports it, please take a moment to write a review. This definitely helps percolate the show up to the top of search results and helps other folks find the show when they do a search. If you would like to give the show some financial support, we'd love to take it from you. (laughs) Uh, We're on Patreon at patreon.com slash up3show. We put extra stuff out there, sometimes some exclusive stuff, and it just helps us keep the lights on here at the show. And without further ado, thank you very much for listening to us. Thank you, Andy, for for being on the show. Awesome. And we will talk to you guys next month. Bye. Bye. Hey, folks. Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting everything you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on prog music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. We make no claim of copyright to any of the music featured in our samples and strongly recommend that you support the artists we talk about by buying their albums and merchandise or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together.